according to his promise. We are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 13 this morning, as we return once again to the parables of the kingdom. We covered two parables last week. Do we need to drop the uh, speaker down just a touch? I actually can hear that. I normally can't hear myself. Okay, Matthew 13. Preparation for the study of the Word of God this morning. Let's take time for silent prayer, making sure that each believer is in fellowship, equipped to handle spiritual truth. Shall we pray? Holy Father, we humble ourselves under the authority of your word this morning and we thank you for the privilege and blessing we have to assemble together to receive instruction. We thank you that the freedom still exists in this country for us to assemble together and teach the word of God. We ask that that freedom might continue, Father, in accordance with the scriptures. And we thank you for this opportunity today. Set aside distractions, hedge us about with your protection, allow the word of God to go forth. And we thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. Famous parables of the kingdom. In the outline then, uh, we had two points of introduction and then, well, really one point of introduction and then the reasons why the parabolic teaching was being given. And then under point three, we uh, went to parable number one, which is the parable of the sower. Under point four, parable number two, the tares and the wheat. And as we examine the tares and the wheat, I want to pick up with that and then we'll proceed on to the mustard seed with parable number three and our main point five. Uh, a lot of the confusion that comes up in this chapter is confusion regarding where does this application fall. Uh, obviously, the non-dispensational approach uh, has its own realms of confusion because of their approach to the Scriptures, but even the dispensational approach has its confusion, which they bring upon themselves by insisting that the parables of Matthew 13 apply to the church. And they tell you that they apply to the church, but they don't explain why they apply to the church. And so they, they are left in a quandary trying to defend Matthew 13 as a church-age text and still defend the church as a mystery prior to Acts chapter 2. And they try to, at the same time, tell you that Matthew 13 is not a church-age text uh, or that it is a church-age text. And then they turn around in Matthew 24 and 25 and they say, oh, no, 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 those are not church age text those aren't rapture passages well i they're correct in what they're saying to a point but we want to make clear that as a dispensational study of the word of god is concerned this can't be a church age text because we don't have a church revealed yet uh, jesus christ is an old testament prophet ministering in the dispensation of israel proclaiming the kingdom of heaven and up till now at least he's proclaimed that the kingdom of heaven is at hand that was the message of the baptizer it was the that was his message the kingdom of heaven is at hand and the kingdom of heaven message will continue in the book of Acts. Even as Christ is ascended, even as the church begins, when you proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and you describe how an unbeliever can, can be saved by virtue of believing the Lord Jesus Christ, you are proclaiming the kingdom called the gospel of the kingdom. And so many of these things I think are blurred when we, uh, we fail to identify appropriately what this kingdom actually is. And this chapter, fortunately... It's a wonderful chapter for helping to start to sort those things out because this chapter is what starts to teach the kingdom as a mystery. starts to teach the kingdom of heaven mystery state. And if we embrace that, then I think 
We're going to go a long way with it. So in the parable of the, of the uh, sower with the seed sown by the roadside and all these four venues for the sowing of seed, it, it is a characteristic of the kingdom of heaven mystery state. That is, from the time of the rejection of the Christ to the time of the acceptance of the Christ. Now, does that include the church age? Of course it includes the church age. We find that out once the church age is unveiled, once the mystery is, is, is revealed, and once the church is on the scene. Yes, we can realize that we are now living in the church age. And yes, the church age does, is, or the, the church is the steward of God's program here on earth, even as the kingdom of heaven proceeds forward in its mystery state. Does that make sense? We'll have, we'll have more to say on that. Because if someone looks right at you and says, well, the church is the kingdom of heaven, they're wrong. Because the kingdom of heaven hasn't come yet, but the church has. The church is here. The church is his body. The church is his bride. The kingdom of heaven is not his body. The kingdom of heaven is not his bride. All right? The kingdom of heaven was at hand, rejected, and now in mystery state until the kingdom of heaven is realized on the earth. We'll have more to say on that as well. But for now, let's just focus on kingdom of heaven mystery state because that's what we're dealing with. Remember that, uh, in fact, I'll even back up to the parable prior to this. The underlying principle, this is for the parable of the sower. The underlying principle of the kingdom of heaven mystery state is the principle of learning the word of God and bearing fruit. That's the underlying principle. You are here this morning to learn the word of God so that you can bear fruit. That's why believers are hungry for teaching. That's why uh, true disciples are those who abide in my word. And if you abide in, my, in the word of Jesus Christ and his word abides in you, you are truly his disciples. That's the underlying principle for the kingdom of heaven mystery state. Equally applicable, of course, in the stewardship of the church. It will also be applicable in the stewardship of Israel when that's restored in the coming age of tribulation. Believers in the tribulation are going to be absolutely uh, focused on learning the word of God and bearing fruit. And in a lot of cases, the bearing of fruit for them is going to be the active expression of faith, supporting one another, loving one another, caring for one another, even as the world explodes around them. So this principle that we're learning now, if you think believers today have the word of God as a priority, What's going to happen when Antichrist rules this world? What are believers going to do then? Definitely they're going to find that learning the Word of God is a priority. Bearing fruit is, is essential by virtue of the worldwide global persecution that will come upon believers in the tribulation. So these things that we're studying, the principles for the church, yes, but there are also principles for the trip for Israel in the tribulation and for Gentile believers in the tribulation. Why is it that one chapter can be so applicable both to the dispensation of the church and to the tribulation? Because this is a passage that's focused on kingdom of heaven mystery state that includes both the church and the tribulation. All right. And I'm going to say this a hundred more times so far as it takes in order to uh, for this to make sense. All right. So that's the parable of the sower. The parable of the wheat and tares, likewise, is uh, so characteristic of the church age, of course. But it's also going to be characteristic of the tribulation. Uh, just reminding yourself, what was the wheat? The wheat are born again believers placed precisely where the Lord wants them. 
The uh, sower is the Lord. And we, have, we went through this last week. What were the tares? The tares are the counterfeit believers. There's a reason why they are tares. Because they look like the wheat. That's the whole point to the parable. And that's the whole point to satanic infiltration into churches. That's why you have whole branches of churches that have an appearance of being Christian churches, but are they? Do they proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ? Or do they proclaim another gospel and are therefore accursed? Why is it that tares are designed to look like wheat, both on an individual basis, on a local church basis, on a denominational basis, worldwide? Why does this happen? Holding to a form of godliness, yet denying its power. So tares are counterfeit believers. When you read through the parable of the wheat and the tares, you will note that it's not when the Lord's uh, sowing wheat, the devil's not out there sowing um, something that doesn't even look remotely close. He's not out there sowing asparagus, right? Because any idiot could look at wheat and asparagus and say, well, gee, those are different things. You know, you got wheat here, you got stalks of wheat growing up here, and you've got uh, pineapple groves over here. Well, that's obviously two different deals, and, and clearly you can distinguish between them, and you can s- select the one or reject the other and so forth. The whole point of sowing tares is to sow something that looks identical, something that is otherwise indistinguishable, something that could help to foster confusion and infiltrate and blend. Remember, that's what Satan does. He disguises himself as an angel of light. So far as his plan and program is concerned, he's got some of the greatest works going in terms of human good, satanic good, and all the other altruistic approaches to earthly life. So, the underlying circumstances of the kingdom of heaven mystery state are the circumstances of diabolical infiltration. Diabolical meaning of the slanderer, of the devil. All right? Diabolical infiltration. And uh, clearly that's characteristic of our present church age. Uh, It's indicative in seminaries and churches and all kinds of places where you wonder, is is the person even regenerate? Is the pastor even saved? And other things as they go forth. It will also be a feature of the tribulation. When true believers are struggling to even survive and infiltrators are set in. See, to root them out, to expose them for who they are. Remember, the goal is the ultimate destruction of of the Jewish people, but also the rejection of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Dark days are coming ahead for tribulational believers. All right, the third parable now. Under point five, parable number three, the mustard seed. Let's read it. These start to get very short now. Why do they start to get short? Well, because we've had the lengthy parables the sower and the wheat and tares, with their explanations. We don't have the explicit explanations on on the rest of these. The reason why is because we should already, based on the first two, we should already start to understand what is going on in these texts, and they don't have to be spelled out for us. In fact, it would be rather unusual to have them all spelled out that way. All right, 31 and 32. He presented another parable to them saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. And this is smaller than all other seeds, but when it is full grown, it is larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. All right, so there it is. Two verses long, and by the time you get into verse 33, it's another parable altogether. 
All right, so now what is this parable about? Are we left to our own creativity to try to determine, well, what's the symbolic language here mean? No. We didn't do that in Ezekiel. We didn't do that in Daniel. We're not doing that in Revelation. We're not going to do that here. In particular, we're going to remind ourselves that, that uh, of course, we've had sowing already in two previous, right? The parable of the sower featured sowing. The uh, parable of wheat and tares featured sowing. Here again, we have a sowing, so, so to speak, that the seed has been sown, the mustard seed. But we also have another common element here. We have birds. Not the first time we've had birds in this chapter. We've seen birds before. Wasn't with the wheat and tares. Where were the birds? The birds were the agents of the adversary that were used in the parable of the sower when the seed was sown by the roadside. As we see in verse uh, 4, he sowed some seeds. As he sowed, some seeds fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate them up. So it's not our first time to see birds in this chapter. And we see those birds in verse 19 when it's explained, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. So you've got birds, plural, snatching away all those seeds, but they're motivated by the evil one described there in verse 19. Remember, Satan is the prince of the power of the air. So how unusual would it be to have birds as a symbol, as a picture for uh, Satan and his minions as the prince of the power of the air. They're the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Birds is quite a natural uh, picture for that. And in this context of the chapter, that's, that's pretty clear because of the, the birds in verse 4. All right, so what are we dealing with? The parable, subpoint A, the parables of the mustard seed and leaven are not explained by the Lord. But their principles are obvious in light of the first two parables. We've got mustard seed here. We've got leaven coming up in verse 33. And likewise, verse 33, you're going to have a parable now in a single verse. No explicit explanation given. The parables of the mustard seed, that's Matthew 13, 31 and 32. And leaven, Matthew 13, 33 are not explained by the Lord, but their principles are obvious in the light of the first two parables. So let's look at it again. Remember the, the pattern that we had in these first two. There's a story that's told, but it's a story that relates to angelic conflict. It's a story that relates to believers struggling to function in this, in this world. So we have it with uh, the mustard seed. See, that the thing is, is a lot of times interpreters will look at this and they'll look at the, the leaven and they'll say, oh, that's bad, right? Leaven is sin, leaven is bad. And they look at other things and they say, oh, that's bad. The tares, oh, that's bad. Uh, thorny ground, rocky ground, oh, no, that's bad, that's bad. But then they get to mustard seed and instead of saying, oh, well, that's bad, they go, oh, that's pretty good, <laughs> Right? And they say, here's a parable with some positive things. Careful now. That's, uh, I think that's taking out of context the, the tenor and the tone of what all seven of these parables are describing. All seven of these parables are describing uh, conflict. Those that are obedient to God's word, those that are serving God, and those that are serving the adversary. And I don't believe this one's any different. 
So as we notice, the parable of the mustard seed, this is point B, the parable of the mustard seed teaches two principles. Two principles. We start with, notice this growth, this unbelievable growth. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and sowed in his field, and this is smaller than all other seeds, but when it is full grown, it is larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree. All right? Phenomenal growth. But as you observe it, <laughs> it doesn't say that growth is good. It doesn't say that the growth is good. It doesn't say that the growth is bad. It just says that it is what it is. And it also then describes the results of that growth, and, and we'll talk about that under the second principle, that it becomes a nesting place for the birds. It doesn't say whether that's good or not, but when we study it, when we, when we consider it, we realize it's not a positive aspect. All right, phenomenal growth. You say, well, what's wrong with phenomenal growth? The, um, let me give you the principle here and then we'll illustrate. The extraordinary growth of the mustard seed illustrates the phenomenal growth of the redeemed in the kingdom of heaven mystery state. It's a picture of growth. Now, that's going to include both church age and tribulation, and we've got scriptures to back that up. But is it a good thing? Because what happens with the growth? As the wheat's growing, what else is growing? Tares are growing. That's right. And as the thing gets large and unwieldy, what ends up happening with it? Who ends up controlling it? Well, we'll talk about that under point two as the birds nest there in the tree. But it, the extraordinary growth. Now, it is extraordinary. It is unprecedented this seed is unique, smaller than other seeds, and yet the, the result is larger than other plants. There is no earthly way to describe its uh, survival and its, and its uh, uh, increasing size, just as in the terms of the church. When you start to consider how Rome dedicated itself to destroying the church in the first century, throwing Christians to lions and every other persecution imaginable, and the, the Jews were their willing accomplices, how did, how did Christianity even survive past Diocletian, for example? As a matter of fact, you know, and, and I think it's fairly well unanimous among church historians, um, the persecution was great for the church. Contrasted with the prosperity, persecution was great for the church because believers... Struggled, but believers grew. That it meant something to be saved. It meant something to profess the name of Jesus Christ, to be willing to die for your faith, to be willing to die for the Scriptures and so forth. The time of persecution was extraordinary, and it was one which prompted evangelism. People would ask, well, what are you following that Jesus guy for? Don't you know it's going to get you killed? And believers would say, it might, but I'm not going to deny my Lord. And the power of that testimony under threat of death, it speaks volumes. You look at that and say, well, you must really believe that then, don't you? The thing is, is when Christianity is popular, once Constantine made it legal and once it became the official religion of the empire, then it went from persecuted to persecutor. Didn't take long. All right. And if it's the in crowd, if it's the place to be, and if that's 
Well, who do you think that's going to attract? Who wouldn't want to be in that group? We'll have more to say on that as well. But keep in mind that we're seeing lots of growth, but that growth is not going to come without the tares. Now, when he talked about the wheat and the tares, it was interesting. It did not give a proportion. It didn't say say how many tares there were compared to the wheat. And and nowhere in this... uh, in this uh, chapter, do we have that as an indicator, except um, I think when we start talking about the hidden treasure, we start talking about the costly pearl. Um, I think we're going to start to see the nature of this, that the true redeemed, the true regenerate, the real church, as opposed to the professing church, is a smaller ratio than the uh, than the phonies. See, legitimate believers will be outnumbered by the imposters. We get that not only from the gospel, I mean, not from the parables in the gospel, but also other passages in the gospels. Broad is the path that leads to destruction. Many there are that go there too. But narrow is the gate, and few find the way. All right? So when you talk about the straight and narrow, if you take that passage as an indicator of proportions, then what's it going to be? So let's look at this again. I think the the aspect of growth, um, we've got this mentality that maybe we can separate ourselves from, maybe not, but this American idea that bigger is always better. Is that the case? Is that the case? Stop to consider how smaller groups can stay faithful and how larger groups compromise. They lose side of their origins they they uh, find themselves polluted by different aspects of worldliness all right the um <laughs> i mean how many ways in the old testament can you see that illustrated all right secondly and oh by the way this also yes this applies to the church the absolute extraordinary growth of the church through the early centuries, on through the Middle Ages, and on through into modern times. Uh, you know, the professing Christianity, the external, visible church that is on the planet today. You know, they'll give you these statistics. You know, about all the the, the two billion Christians in the world today, and two billion seems like a lot. With six billion on the planet, doesn't two billion seem like a lot? All right. Well, one billion of those pray to Mary. Some of them are regenerate. How many are regenerate? All right, so that's that's half right there. Then out of the other billion that don't pray to Mary. See what I'm saying? How many proclaim the, the gospel of Jesus Christ as, as the means of salvation? Anyway, I'm just illustrating, but the percentages are low, and I believe that's a biblical principle it's also going to be a feature in the age of tribulation considering the fact that it starts with zero believers on the planet <laughs> all right the morning after the rapture there's no redeemed on, on earth no regenerate on planet earth but then people start to wake up and when they're starting to figure out where did all those people go and you know my my wife was telling me about the bible and telling me about this rapture thing and i didn't believe her but she's gone now and and, and so a guy starts picking up a bible and starts picking up uh notes or listening to the mp3s on a website somewhere or who knows but people start getting saved after the rapture and the numbers that get saved are extraordinary and i don't know 
it's not often thought of in this term, but when you let's go to Revelation and we'll see a a concept of it here. It's not just the 144,000 that are sealed. Those are the sealed and protected evangelists. But the actual numbers that get saved, we're told, cannot be numbered because they're so great. Um, And I know I'm... Am I going to find it? (laughs) problem is i've been in every chapter of revelation every day for the last six months yeah four but i'm also thinking seven nine seven nine is the verse i'm thinking of yeah seven four has the number sealed One hundred forty-four thousand. these are the jewish evangelists twelve thousand from each of these twelve tribes but then in verse nine after these things i looked and behold a great multitude which no one could count So how many get saved? That's right. No one can count. From every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands. So there is a huge growth that takes place. This parable of the mustard seed applies to the tribulation. Why does it apply to the tribulation? Because this is a parable of the kingdom of heaven mystery state. And during the tribulation of Israel on earth, the kingdom of heaven continues in its mystery state. The mystery state is in between uh, the rejection of the Christ and acceptance of the Christ. And so the growth of uh, the redeemed in the tribulation are going to be absolutely um, phenomenal. Even when they're being executed. Even when they're being beheaded for their faith. So we have the illustration. Be encouraged about that. Are are tough times up ahead? Yes, they are. More so for those who don't have Christ today. Because they'll still be here after the trumpet. But even today, as growth has saturated this planet with professing Christians, we find ourselves in this wheat and tear circumstance. And we find that those who are true disciples are... The minority. Now the second issue. The nesting activity of the birds. The nesting activity of the birds illustrates the attention that Satan's angels pay to the assemblies of born-again believers. The nesting activity of the birds illustrates the attention that Satan's angels pay to the assemblies of born-again believers. Beyond simply flying to the roadside and picking up seeds and taking seeds away. This is where they're nesting. You know what nesting means? Yeah, you're living there. That's where you're setting up your home. You're getting comfy. You're bringing in branches and twigs and, and feathers and, and tufts of, uh, of moss and other soft things. And you're, you're building a nice little cozy nest. This is where the birds are nesting. Where are the, 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 the ministers of the adversary, where are they nesting? In the churches. Motivating the moral depravity that drives half of this world's program. The other half, of course, is the immoral depravity. And, but typically, you want to know the dirty little secret of this? 
typically, the fallen angels don't have to mess with the, with the immoral depravity very much. They certainly don't have to nest there. They don't have to dwell there because the, the sin nature does all that on its own. The sin nature for fallen humanity, they're going to they're gonna plunge into that realm of, of, uh, of uh, carnality and, 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 and lasciviousness and lust and all the rest of that. Where, the, where the, the minions of the adversary really have to work is in the realm of moral depravity. They have to be able to function within the structures of religion, within the structures of external goodness, to where people that have the ascetic trends of their sin nature, where they can thrive. See, there really is no special work required to promote the, 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 the lascivious side of stuff. Okay? Now, if you're not familiar with that, I, I recommend Romans 1 and Romans 2 that you can really get a handle on the immoral depravity and the moral depravity. I won't take the time to do that this morning, but I would recommend Romans 1, immoral depravity from everything. All the fornication and homosexuality and everything. All the, 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 the overt immoral sins in Romans chapter 1. Okay? But when you get to Romans chapter 2, the whole point there is that the moral Jews are no better. Looking down their long snooty noses in their pride and their self-righteousness. That they are, yes, they're moral, but they're still depraved. Which is the whole point in chapter 3. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Are you immorally depraved? You need, you need Christ. Are you morally depraved? You need Christ. The solution is salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. See, we don't want to get confused with sub substituting this moral depravity for something righteous. It's not. Not at all. So, where they're nesting? They're nesting in the branches of this great tree. They're nesting within the external structure that is the outward, visible, professing church. I don't find it coincidental at all how uh, we've got all these battles going on and different things, marching and demanding uh, that we uh, that you know that women be ordained as pastors or women become priests or homosexuals be ordained as pastors or homosexuals be ordained as priests and all of these things that a lot of them make the news some of them don't but they've been progressing for ages why do we have so many homosexual pastors demanding to be recognized because guess what they're already there they're there they're just now demanding legitimacy for being there and one by one by one, how many of the denominations have folded on the, on the matter? How many have not folded yet? And is there any wonder why they haven't folded yet? Chances are, those are the, the lampstands where there still is at least some kind of a ratio of true wheat. True believers that read the Bible and say, you know what, this is not right. Why is there such a population in the seminaries? Absolutely overrun. Students and faculties like with homosexuals. Why are they going into the ministries? Why are they going into seminaries? Why are they involved in education in public schools? Why are they involved? Why do they select these fields to go into? Coincidence? Accident? Design. 2,000 years ago, the Lord Jesus Christ spoke this message about wheat and tares and about birds nesting in the branches. I mean, 
Think about it. What better way to destroy a local church than to plant your own agent, put them through school, give them the best grades imaginable, get them in a local church, take out a whole church that way. It will also be a feature of the uh, nesting activity. It will also be a feature of the tribulation as well, not just the church age. But these, uh, these parables are all going to have applications on both sides. All right. Parable 4, 11. Getting shorter, just a single verse. He spoke another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until all was leavened. Is that a positive parable? <laughs> if so, it's the only place in Scripture where we have leaven described as a good thing. It's not. Leaven throughout Scripture indicates the, the uh, pervasiveness of sin. It speaks of the infectious and spreading nature of sin and its influence. Now notice, uh, took and hidden three pecks of flour. And, and I've some people do all kinds of things. They say, well, this is, you know, Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, and Protestant. Okay? There's your three branches of Christianity today. And well, okay, fine. Yes, professing Christianity today is broken down into three branches. However, the concept being, though, beyond the number three, the, the fact that, that um, the flower is separated is a good thing. It's a very good thing. You know, think about if you have, um, you know, why did ships separate their cargo holds? Why do they keep their food stores in different compartments and different containers and so forth? Because if, if a compartment leaks and if seawater gets in and destroys your, your, uh, your food stocks, and that's your one and only compartment with food, well, you're just out there, aren't you? But no, you divide it out into the different parts so that if one is spoiled, the others are still fine. See, and I love the way this didn't happen by accident. Jesus Christ is not an idiot. He's the head of the church. There's a reason why we have all of these branches of Christianity, all of these denominations, all of these local church movements, all of this wide variety. The skeptic looks at that and says, the church is a failure. I look at that and say, Jesus Christ is brilliant. Because what he's doing, he's demanding that as the leaven spreads, it has to actually spread to each individual place. And that's what's happening here. But notice eventually, all was leavened. The church age is not going to be at a peak or a huge revival when the trumpet sounds. It's going to be at its absolute low. When, when the Son of Man returns, will he find any faith upon the earth? See, and I believe that the state of Christianity will be at a pathetic low at the rapture. That is, the true regenerate disciples will be so few. And the professing, not even regenerate, uh, moral individuals will be so many. I, I'm starting to wonder if the rapture will even be a noticeable event. Or if it will be able to be buried worldwide in media accounts and all the rest. So, you notice the result, all was leavened. Very consistent with what Paul talks about in the last days, difficult times will come. The church is not getting better. Contrary to, of course, 
the kingdom mentality of post-millennialism and, and reconstructionists and, and uh, the replacement theology crowd and other groups that are trying to bring the kingdom in through human effort, they're marching to Zion, by golly, and they're bringing the kingdom in with them. All right? And, and they're going to, we're, you know, <laughs> onward Christian soldiers and we're doing all the rest of the stuff and aren't we great? That's not going to be the case. Actually, we're on the downhill slide. The parable of leaven teaches the pervasiveness of sin throughout the kingdom of heaven mystery state. The parable of leaven teaches the pervasiveness of sin throughout the kingdom of heaven mystery state. Now we know the world is getting darker. We know that the devil is having his restraint lifted. His program is accelerating. I believe that sin itself is accelerating, that each passing generation of fallen man, that sin nature is stronger, that sin itself is intensifying. So you have the world, the flesh, and the devil. Each one is on an increasing curve. I believe that's not only what we observe in the world around us. I hate doing things by observation, but what we see in Scripture. We're going from bad to worse. And that's true in terms of the world, the cosmos. That's true in terms of the devil and his program to the point where he'll be totally unrestrained at the post-rapture tribulation. And even the flesh itself, the sin nature itself in its strengthening conditions. But notice it's spreading. This is why you have to remove the wicked man from among yourself. This is why that man of incest in 1 Corinthians 5 had to go. That's why you have to, to remove the gangrene in order to preserve the body. Because sin is not going away. It's only going to spread if you tolerate it, if you keep it there. That's why uh, the, the Jezebel woman had to go in Thyatira. That's why these things have to happen. Because if they don't, that lampstand's sunk. It's gone. In fact, news stories on that this past week too. In terms of that Colorado pastor and the things going on there. So the pervasiveness of sin... Now start to consider this is true not only in the church. This is mind-boggling. When, when a, a Christian sins are exposed, the, the, the critics just come right out and attack that and say, Ha! Look at him. What a hypocrite. And you start to wonder, well, what, what really has been exposed? That that person's not the sinless, perfect Lord Jesus Christ? Is that a newsflash? You know, it's almost as if the only ones that are safe from this kind of condition are those that don't even make a pretense in the first place. Just live in open immorality and then whatever you want to do is fine. Nothing gets exposed because you're okay with it. What's the big deal? See how that works? It's the pervasiveness of sin. What was formerly thought of as wrong, immoral, taboo, now it's accepted, normal natural and if you say anything about it then you're closed-minded bigoted hypocritical because you do it too right pervasiveness of sin that's the nature of the church age but think about what's going to happen in the tribulation no more believers on the planet think about the the restraint being lifted think about if you think there's an anything goes mentality today just wait till the morning after the rapture 
when even pastors and churches are going to start saying, hey, whatever you want to do. Because there will be pastors and churches still here the morning after the rapture. The pervasiveness of sin, the pervasiveness of leaven. And you'll note it all was leavened. Now, these last parables under point seven. Oh, no, wait, I got a beast, though. Sin has become common in every dispensation and age. No, yeah, don't get me wrong on that. There was sin in the Old Testament. Sin was common in the dispensation of Israel, common in the dispensation of the Gentiles. That's why the world was flooded in Noah's day. Sin has been common in every dispensation and age. But throughout the kingdom of heaven mystery state, sin will work in a particularly leavenish manner. I don't know if that's a word or not, but I used it. In order to poison or corrode believers from within. In order to poison or corrode believers from within. Sin has been common in every dispensation and age. We talk about how common was sin in the days of Noah. Worldwide. But that was among the unbelievers, of course. Who were the believers in Noah's day? Noah and his family. There you go. But, and so sin has always been around. Sin has always been pervasive among unbelievers. But the characteristic of leaven spreading throughout even the redeemed. Does that get depressing? Sure. That's why Paul wrote Romans 8 and 9. Because I hate this. Why am I doing what I know is wrong? Why am I doing what I know uh, my mind says this is sin? My body says, yeah, it's fun. Let's do some more. Throughout the kingdom of heaven, mystery of state, sin will work in a particularly leavenish manner in order to poison crow believers from within. The divorce rate among Christians has matched the divorce rate outside of the Christian church. Why is that? What, what, what realm of sin is there now that Christians don't get involved in? Everything. They do everything that an unbeliever does. And uh, so, you know, do we anticipate, uh, do we anticipate that getting better anytime soon? Well, only if you're going to rewrite the portions of Scripture that say it's getting worse. It's the nature of it. So what, what do we do? Just throw our hands up and say, oh, well, things are getting worse. No. As it gets worse, we increase our prayers. We absolutely increase our prayers. We pray for our marriages. We pray for our pastors. We pray for our churches. We pray for believers where the word of God is being taught. Because there's so few lampstands left where the word's being taught, it's getting easier and easier for those birds to go pinpoint them and, and start working there. will happen also in terms of the uh, tribulational saints as well. The sin struggles that they're going to be faced with. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting the the conditions. What really makes Joseph such a character in, in, in a testimony in character and godliness is that he maintained his integrity even while he was in Egypt. Even while he was away from his father, he was away from his family, he was away from his people, he was away from his God, he was away from the promised land. You know what I mean when I say he was away from his God. Okay, God was still with him. But here's an 18-year-old kid who's a slave in Egypt who's down there in the midst of all the promiscuity and immorality and everything else and his master's wife wants to sleep with him and, and he still holds to his faith. It makes that story of, of Joseph that much more 
Remarkable. Daniel in, in uh, Babylon, same, same story. Well, now, consider the age of the tribulation. Consider the absolute licentiousness that that age will be characterized by. Consider the struggles that believers there are going to have because of what was the baggage they brought with them into the tribulation to begin with. I mean, we, we were seeing it here in Corinth with their, with their issues, what they're fighting because of what they, you know, the temple of Aphrodite and the things they did before they got saved. And now they've got their hangups that are all expressed throughout 1 Corinthians. It's going to be that way in the tribulation. Sin will work, like it will spread like wildfire, even throughout true believers. Poisoning or corroding believers from within. It's a fascinating word study that describes what leaven does, how it poisons, how it corrodes, how it spreads. And it's a term that relates to a term that we had the other night in a week ago in the book of James for poisonous corrosion for the destructiveness that, uh, that we were looking at that other night. That's going to be a feature of the tribulation. All right, our next parable. Actually, we're going to cover all three of them in the same point of study. Parable 5, Parable 6, and Parable 7. The hidden treasure, the pearl of great price, and the dragnet. So under point 7, we've titled point 7, Parables 5, 6, and 7. Hidden treasure, pearl of great price, and dragnet. And uh, as I said, these parables are starting to get shorter. Now they start to get a little bit longer. One verse, two verses, three verses. Hidden treasure is a single verse in verse 44. Pearl of great price is two verses, 45 and 46. The dragnet is uh, 47, 48, 49, and 50. Four verses long. All right, let's read it. Do I go too fast? I don't give you guys time to write stuff down. I know it's easier to speak than to write. So this is main point seven now, parables five, six, and seven. Hidden treasure, that's Matthew 13, 44. The pearl of great price, 45 and 46. I'll give you a clue, it has nothing to do with Mormonism. And parable seven, the dragnet, Matthew 13, 47 through 50. 47 through 50. All right, verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, I'll take the, he, the again out. The man found and hid. I guess you can put it again in there. Uh, but it's a treasure hidden in the field which a man found and hid. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Hmm. That's it. All right. And we don't have an explanation. We don't have the Lord tell his disciples. Now listen to the parable of the uh, hidden treasure. Okay. But what we have are the context of this chapter. We have the surrounding parables around it, both before and after, particularly after. We have the, uh, the imagery of the field. We've we seen that before. Yeah, we have. We've seen the field. Parable of the sower, parable of the wheat and the tares. We've seen the field already. Um, but rather than seed, 
We don't have seed. We have treasure. So we've got to do something different. We can't handle this like we handle the seed. This has to be something beyond seed that's taking place here. Let's look at verse 45. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. All right, so we have a pearl. We have treasure and a pearl. We have a land. Uh, Keep in mind, in these parables, we've had different venues. We've had different realms. Remember, the first parable had four venues. It had a roadside venue. It had a rocky soil venue. It had a thorny ground venue. And it had a good soil venue. So we're already accustomed to thinking in terms of venues. In the parable of the wheat and tares, we had one venue, but two different uh, uh, bodies, uh, two different uh, things that were being sown in that same venue. Right now here, when you start to think of venues in the hidden treasure, the venue is earth and in the pearl, the the venue is where do you get pearls? Water, okay, land, sea, okay, keep that in mind. In fact, hold it in mind, not only for this class, but keep that train of thought working in the book of Revelation because there's a beast that comes out of the sea and there's a beast that comes out of the earth. So just keep a lot of these concepts in mind because they are they are not uh, isolated. They are not unique. They're not just gimmicky ways of trying to interpret things. They are consistent throughout the scriptures. When you're talking about the seas, you're talking about merchants. You're talking about people that travel the earth. You're talking about the Gentile nations. All right. And then uh, the dragnet, verse 47. We'll look at that here in a moment. Subpoint A, these last three parables have no explicit interpretation, just like the two we previously looked at, just like leaven, just like mustard seed. But their principles become obvious in the light of the first two parables. That's our interpretive key for handling um, mustard seed, for handling leaven, for handling hidden treasure, for handling pearl of great price, for handling dragnet. It's, it's the pattern, it's the blessing of being consistent with the text, of, being, of, having, of maintaining a literal hermeneutic, of letting Scripture interpret Scripture. We can relax about it. We don't go off on these tangents or off into these deep woods trying to promote our, our little cause or whatever with what we're trying to do. So what are the hidden treasure and the pearl? Well, they're similar, but they're not identical. The hidden treasure and pearl represent two similar but not identical purchases that the buyer obtains through a total expenditure of all personal wealth. There are similarities. They both have a buyer. And in both parables, they're going to sell everything to get the item. Whether it's the treasure, the buried treasure in the earth, or whether it's that single pearl from the sea. So that's the similarity. The hidden treasure and the pearl represent two similar, but not identical, purchases that the buyer obtains through a total expenditure of all personal wealth. See, for joy over it, we're told in verse 44, he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. See, he's found it, but he can't claim it. 
because it's not his field. Somebody else owns that field. So what does he have to do? Well, he's got to act like he hasn't found it, and he has to bury it again. Then he has to go buy the field. And after he buys the field, he can say, oh, look what I found. See, it's like the guy who, who uh, had the winning lotto ticket, acted like he didn't have it, divorced his wife, and then came forward and claimed the winning ticket. <laughs> and the lawyer said, no, 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 no. You're not getting out of that. She gets half. <laughs> In fact, I think she got more than half because of the dastardly way he tried to act like he didn't have the ticket when he was still married and on and on. He wants the treasure, but it's not his land. Okay. Now, there's some interesting things here that describe this. <coughs> But what you want to keep in mind, he has to wait. The, uh, the other guy with a pearl, like a merchant seeking fine pearls, and he finds one pearl of great value, and he can immediately make the purchase. And he can immediately lay claim to it. He went and sold all that he had and bought it. So in the one, there is a, there, there's a precious item, but it's hidden away for a time, and it can't be redeemed until something else happens. He cannot take possession of it until something else takes place first. So his reception of that treasure is delayed until he can come into possession of the land. Okay? Think through these things. The other one, though, is, uh, is immediately available. When the redemption purchase is prized, uh, when the redemption price is paid, the purchase is effective immediately, and the, the custody of that pearl is immediately taken. So there are differences. So, what are they? The hidden treasure, I'll give it away. Have you figured it out yet? See, and here's, a, here's an issue. Different, different groups that struggle with this. Okay, Remember, there's the crowd that says, this is all church age. Well, they want to ignore Israel, of course, and everything that they do. Because the church replaces Israel and we're the kingdom and aren't we wonderful. Then there's the other crowd that says, no, this isn't church age. This is all tribulation. This is all Israel. And so both groups are failing to see that it's both. It's both. There's an application for the church. There's an application for Israel because it's not a dispensational text. It's a kingdom text describing for us the nature of the kingdom of heaven in its mystery state. So the hidden treasure represents Israel. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, but hidden away for a period of time. It's a treasure, but it's hidden. Matter of fact, that treasure cannot be embraced and enjoyed until the land is possessed. Until this person can take custody of the land. When he has custody of the land, that hidden treasure can then be brought forth. See how that works? Now, whoever would have thought, as the kingdom of heaven mysteries are being revealed, Israel has no idea that they're about to be scattered to the four winds. They have no idea that a church is about to be formed of Jew and Gentile together, one body in Christ. They have no idea that the kingdom is 2,000 years away now because they were told the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Okay? But... With the rejection of the Christ, with the kingdom of heaven being, uh, being transferred down to this mystery state, 
Now there's this idea of this dispersion. See, Israel thought that all those passages talking about their dispersion, they thought that was Babylon. And the promise of being regathered, they thought, hey, Ezra and Nehemiah took care of that. They brought us back from Babylon. Not so. Their worldwide dispersion is waiting until 70 A.D., until Titus destroys the temple and they are globally dispersed. And their worldwide regathering is not fulfilled by Ezra and Nehemiah. It's fulfilled by the Lord Jesus Christ at the second advent. So the idea of this treasure being in the field is, uh, is uh, being presented here in this mystery teaching. And yet it's, uh, it ought to be a huge warning. Much as the other warnings that are coming of the pending destruction of, of Jerusalem. The pearl represents the church redeemed by the blood of the Lamb and obtained for immediate good pleasure. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb and obtained for immediate good pleasure. Doesn't have to wait. Doesn't need to take possession of any land first. The church is an immediate possession, it's an immediate treasure. The immediate good pleasure of the Lord. There's also other uh, symbolism behind here when you study pearls and you find that uh, it's consistent with uh, a wedding veil, consistent with uh, sewing uh, uh, for the bride to, 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 uh, to sew her veil and to sew her dress and all the treasure that's associated with a wedding. Well, what's the church? The bride of Christ. What a perfect picture if for the, the symbolism of this parable to reference the church. Now, can he come right out and talk about the church yet? Not Matthew 13, he can't. Not until Acts chapter 2 will the church even be unfolded and start to be revealed. Throughout all the epistles can then the, the, uh, the full understanding of the church be exposed. But even while still in mystery form, these parables are laying groundwork. These parables are... are Showing what the kingdom of heaven mystery state is going to be all about. It's going to be about two treasures. One that's immediately obtained and one that has to wait until the land is, is, uh, is uh, owned. Until the land is secured. And that's the, that's the greatest outline you can come up with for the kingdom of heaven mystery state. Church age, tribulation. Church age, tribulation. Two treasures. Two Items of value. See, and those that don't draw distinctions between Israel and the church, they just say, oh, come on, it's all the same. They uh, they blend in all of redeemed humanity and they fail to distinguish between Israel and the church. And they say, well, it's all just one big, happy, heavenly family. Doesn't matter if you're Jew, if you're Gentile or whatever. And they take the current standards of the church where there's no Jew or Gentile all that were one body in Christ, and they retroactively go back to the Old Testament and tell you there's no difference between, uh, between a Gentile believer in the Old Testament like Melchizedek and a Jewish believer in the Old Testament like David. Unless they were all just believers. And they fail to realize that Jesus Christ in John 17 does not, does not say, in my Father's house is one great big happy romper room for all believers. He says, in my Father's house are many dwelling places. That there are a variety of redeemed houses. The house of the Gentiles, the house of the Jews. The, and one house that hadn't even been built yet. When Jesus says, in my Father's house are many dwelling places, those are already there. 
Those were already constructed. Those already exist. Those are already occupied. But he says, I go to prepare a place for you. The place for the church does not yet exist when he says that in John 14. Our dwelling place is the, is the function of Christ preparing that now in the church age. And so we have parables such as the treasure hidden in the field, such as the pearl of great price, and we're left to describe, okay, answer me this then. If there's only one body of redeemed and we have just kind of a general resurrection and a general uh, you know, thing for believers, well then why the two different pictures? And why is one in the earth? Why does one come from the sea? And why does one uh, have to be delayed in its uh, possession and enjoyment until a land is occupied? Why is the other uh, received and enjoyed immediately? Okay. And you start to see when you start comparing Scripture with Scripture and taking the whole counsel of God's word into view that these parables are remarkable in the things they're describing. Not necessarily teaching about the church, the church is still mystery, but teaching about the kingdom of heaven mystery state, church age and tribulation. And once we have the church information, we can then see in its fullness what these what these parables are. I'm out of time. I really wanted to wrap this up today, but we will have to deal with Dragnet next week. And uh, Dragnet is kind of similar to Wheat and Tares in that you've got true believers and phonies. And uh, the focus then is the end of the age in verse 49, the end of the age. And so we'll talk about the end of the age next Wednesday morning or the end of the world. Some King James or other translations have end of the world. I hope we're not worried about the end of the world. The Bible talks about it at length. We can have confidence with respect to it. This world is passing away and along with it, it's lust. But the good news is, is that at the end of the world, there's a new world the new heavens and the new earth, the new Jerusalem, all things made new. And that's what we're looking forward to. So there might be people out there terrified of the end of the world. Might even think that last night's elections were the end of the world. Guess what, folks? They're not. His plan's going forward. We can rejoice in that. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for these parables. Um, I can only imagine how lost and confused and scornful the pharisees were at these stories they probably thought they were just little kid stories or something stupid but the lord was teaching some uh, depth some wonderful depth of messages that was beyond anything that uh, that the pharisees could have even imagined we thank you for the truth of doctrine we thank you for the kingdom of heaven mystery state we thank you that it's in a mystery state that uh, when uh, the king was rejected that you didn't respond by just uh, scrapping everything and taking out your wrath on Israel and starting over with the church. You simply transitioned the kingdom into a mystery state and patiently uh, worked out your plan. You continue to work out your plan. But the kingdom of heaven is on the way. Your will will be done on earth as it is in heaven and your plan is going forward. We thank you for that as well. Father, guide us as we return to our homes. Thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.